Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question. Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today we're back once again talking about the dun-dun-dun impeachment. And joining us, uh, our, our local and favorite uh, impeachment, I, I guess, impresario, <laughs> expert on it, uh, former federal prosecutor and uh, rock and roll fan. Uh, that We'll have to talk about that, too. Michael Zeldin, who's also a CNN contributor. And when we get back, we're going to ask, just ask the question, what comes next? So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, and we're back. And I guess, uh, Michael, thanks for joining us again, because this is always, to me, very fascinating to sit down and talk about impeachment and where it goes next. And you've actually, I've read what you've written and what you think Donald Trump, and this is based on the testimony that uh, that we've all heard so far. What do you think the articles of impeachment should include? So I think that there are different ways to construct the articles of impeachment. And essentially, they break down into abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, if we're limiting it to Ukraine uh, to start this conversation. But I think that you can take abuse of power and really divide it into two categories. One category is the solicitation itself. That is, the transcript on the 25th of July in which the president of the United States says to Zelensky, in which the I'll say it again, sorry, in which the president of the United States says to President Zelensky of Ukraine, "I want you to do me a favor in one part, and then I'd like you to do this other thing in another part." So he's making two requests of Zelensky to do investigations related to Biden's or CrowdStrike, which is the Ukraine conspiracy theory that they. Interrupted, but that's the US. not really true. Is I mean, at bottom line, according to Sondland, they didn't have to conduct the investigation; they just had to announce an investigation. I understand, but in terms of drafting an article of impeachment, uh-huh. the 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 first part of it is the solicitation. That is, I want you to do this. Right. To me, in and of itself, the president of the United States asking a foreign power to do. An investigation of a political rival is, in and of itself, actionable. Secondly— I think the House would agree with you. (laughs) Well, we'll see. Secondly, and sort of like piling on, is the secondary question of if that request came through, would there be some other conditions imposed if the investigation wasn't completed? Meaning, I ask you to do me a favor, and you say, well, think about it. You say, well, you know what? You think about it all you want, but while you're thinking about it, you're not going to get military aid. You're not going to get your coveted White House meeting. So, you know, you think about it. I think that secondary act, which is the quid pro quo, essentially, 
if you want your meeting, if you want your aid, you will do my favor is 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 separate and also actionable. And also also action. And I would separate the two so that article 1 would be the improper solicitation, the request, and article 2 would be the the pressure campaign which we are now calling the quid pro quo. Then article 3 would be the obstruction of congress which is the preventing of witnesses to be uh, subpoenaed and, and and honor those subpoenas and to present documents as has been requested by no, subpoena. No. Trump says that there haven't been enough witnesses and that there need to be more and there's been no one come forward that's a firsthand uh, witness to the events. Isn't that, be- isn't that because he's refused to allow them to testify? Well, that's right. You cannot have a situation, it seems to me, where you say, as Jonathan Turley did in a sense yesterday, the congressional um, testimony yesterday right. with the con- uh, constitutional ex constitutional experts, Turley, a professor at George Washington University Law School, says essentially we're really in a premature state to proceed. We don't have the witnesses that we need to know for sure what happened. But the president is stonewalling, and those witnesses are not likely to be forthcoming, not in a timely fashion. And so in a sense, buying into, well, we have to wait until the president decides whether or not those witnesses can come forward or the courts have to order them to come forward. We might be in 2021 before that's all um, resolved. And so the question is, if somebody has done something actionable, should you act on it now or should you defer until uh, the possibility of a more complete record? You can pick either way. I, I tend to favor the act now and not interfere with the 2020 election or not let the president of the United States try this again because he feels he somehow has gotten away with it. Right. I mean, he's not going to stop. I mean, and, and I, I obviously by his own admission, he I mean, he admitted it. And then I was standing five feet away from him when he also doubled down and said, hey, China, investigate Biden, too. I mean, this is not the facts have not been disputed. The facts now that the, the interpretation of the facts have have definitely been disputed. But the 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 phone call itself, he issued a transcript which he claims is a perfect phone call. But the transcript itself is very incriminating, is it not? Yes, that's and that's why I'm that's what I'm calling the solicitation. Yeah. In that transcript, the president says two things. First, he says. Our relationship between the United States and Ukraine has not been equal. We've been giving you more than you've been giving us. And so I want you to do me a favor. And that favor is to investigate the Bidens. Then he says later on, I would like you to also investigate this crowd strike, this theory that the Ukrainians and not the Russians interfered with the 2016 election. So he says in one sentence, I'd like you to do me a favor. The other one, he says, I'd like you to do this. So two asks of the of the Ukrainians, both of which I think are inappropriate and both of which could form the basis for this abuse of the powers of the office, meaning that he was acting in his personal political, um, to his personal political advantage as opposed to the advantage of the United States. Because clearly the Ukrainians did not want to get sucked into right. By into partisan politics, because if you look at the relationship between the United States and Ukraine, historically, they've 
um, had bipartisan support. And, and the fear here was that if they started doing the bidding of one political party over the other, they'd lose bipartisan support, and that could jeopardize their national security. And it, well, two points to what you say, and I, I mentioned it earlier, but I go back to it because I think it speaks to your point. It wasn't even that he wanted an investigation. I mean, he has used wanting an investigation as, as a counterpoint to saying that he was trying to fight corruption. And that's why he wanted the investigation. But Sondland testified that it wasn't even an investigation that he wanted. It was just the appearance of an investigation, that he just had to he didn't have to conduct an investigation. They just had to say they were going to investigate him at some point. So Trump could use that not for the United States, but for his own personal gain. Isn't that important? Well, if it's true and, you know, Sondland's testimony is, you know, sort of. Not a picture of consistency. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but if, point taken. If Sondland is to believed on this point, his his point was, and one of the and the, the professor from Stanford highlighted this herself, saying that the if the ask was really just to do a public shaming, I didn't really care at the bottom whether you did the investigation or didn't do the investigation, but I wanted you, the president of, of, of Ukraine, to come before a microphone and announce this. And that's, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Because then it does undermine any notion that there was a true anti-corruption aspect to the president's ask, but rather instead it was just a public shaming, if you will, calling out of Biden uh, for potential corruption with no opportunity essentially for Biden to respond. And and the second part of that point was um, in his transcript that the president, which is a memo of, of the conversation and not to be confused with an actual transcript, but in his quote unquote transcript of that perfect phone call, he also mentions, if you read through it at the end, that not only does he want these favors, but after the fact, he's going to send his man, his consigliere, he's going to send uh, Rudy Giuliani. And, and he tells the president of Ukraine, hey, he's a good man. He's a great man. Talk to him. It, to follow up on the favor that the president asked, it, to me, it struck, it's almost like a Don Corleone moment. If, if you don't do the favor, I'm sending my consigliere and we know who's going to have the, uh, the decapitated horse and put it in your bed. I, I mean, is there an implied threat with that? Can you see that as an implied threat? Well, Lieutenant Colonel Vidman testified that as he heard it, it sounded like an order. Yeah. And and he he didn't mince words like that. He said it didn't sound like a favor. It sounded like an order. And if you remember way back to another um, witness in a different matter, which was Michael Cohen, Michael Cohen said the president doesn't really make direct demands. Correct. But those who work for him understand what he wants. And he doesn't have to, therefore, talk that way. He can just let it be known with a wink and a nod what it is that he is, in fact, demanding. And then, you know, later on, perhaps he has, you know, uh, deniability yeah. because he hasn't made a demand. And um, that really, to me, as a legal matter, shouldn't be availing. If you give a wink and a nod and everyone understands who's working for you— that that's the order um, that you have to follow, the, the plausible deniability aspect of it falls away 
because the, be, yeah, because I, there was no de, you know demand language. Yeah, just because you didn't say it overtly doesn't mean that covertly it wasn't meant. I mean, that's the basis, is it not? And you you prosecuted some cases. Uh, isn't that kind of the basis for RICO? I mean, well, it's the it's the basis for extortion. Yeah, you know, and, and you mentioned the, the the Godfather, and in the Godfather movie, there was always that refrain of, "Well, what if he, you know, doesn't." Accept your overture. He says, well, I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Cotillo was a pimp. He never cut off all Santino. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> right. And so um, the implication of an offer he cannot refuse is a threat. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in this case, the, the language of the president, as understood by people who were on the call, like Vindman, was that this was not, if you want to do this, feel free to. And if you don't, <laughs> that's fine with me, too. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't doesn't seem to square with the reality of those who are listening in. All of those who are listening in were so alarmed by the, the, the ask that they either made note of it or they went to legal counsel um, in the um, intelligence community apparatus to report their, you know, sort of concern about the legality of the of the so-called favor. So you have mentioned three articles of impeachment. Is there are there any more that you would prefer? Right. So in respect of Ukraine, my my theory is Article One, the solicitation, asking of the favors right. two favors. Article two is Article two is the quid pro quo. And Article Three is yeah, Article yeah. Three is the obstruction of Congress, the failure to produce records or people. And then anything else? An optional Article Four is do they want to go into the Mueller case? That was my next question, actually. Should Mueller be a part of or of this? Kevin yeah. McCarthy, and I'll tell you why I say this. Kevin McCarthy, the um House minority leader, said so far that this investigation is too narrow. That was the the, the it, it's almost begging the question is, well, what isn't too narrow? Would would McCarthy accept a, a more broad investigation and that it's not complete? So does the Senate, I mean, does the House GOP minority leader have a point in saying it's too narrow and therefore should Mueller report investigation be in the mix for impeachment? Well, it, it's a fair question. Um, I try on occasion. <laughs> the, 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 again, the, the McCarthy Turley question is what is the rush? Even if the president is reelected because we didn't get this impeachment underway, Nixon, remember, was reelected right. um, after the Watergate break in, but he was. But prior uh, to the investigations that would have led to an impeachment. But he was still, he resigned in his second. Yes, he did, yeah. Even though the act started in his first term. <laughs> it, it started in his first term to facilitate a second term. Well, kind of similar to what we're going through now. Well, and so if you look at that as precedent, you can say, fine, let's just do that. And so if Trump gets reelected and the courts order all these witnesses to testify and those witnesses give even more uh, damning evidence, then you'll have a basis to impeach and they won't be and perhaps even remove and there'll be no harm done. And the vice president, whoever that is. Uh, we'll assume the presidency, and on we will go. Others, you know, don't don't accept that, and they think that it has to be now. And in respect of now, 
The question becomes, should, as you asked, should Mueller be part of this? And, uh, you know, part of me says, yeah, absolutely. Mueller articulated multiple areas of obstruction of justice by the president in respect of his investigation. And that obstruction of justice should not be countenanced just as it wasn't countenanced in Clinton. Remember, right. he, he he was indicted. He was impeached for obstructing the investigation. A 50-50 vote in the Senate on that. Interestingly, because the lying to the grand jury part of it, there were 10 Republican defections. So the obstruction of justice was the stronger argument in, in the Clinton impeachment. It may well be here, too, and therefore Mueller's evidence should come in would be the argument. The problem is when you're trying to tell a simple story that the American people can understand. Dredging up Mueller obstruction of justice stuff doesn't lend itself to that simple narrative. And so if you are, you know, if you're looking at this from a prosecutor's standpoint or a storyteller's standpoint, Ukraine gives you a beginning, middle, and end that's quite linear. Mueller, the injection of Mueller into it makes it a much more complicated story to tell and gives the opponents much more ammunition to uh, yell and scream about and create diversions. So you wouldn't include Mueller, or you would? I, I, I have written that if Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, is allowed to testify, and he testifies in a compelling way that the President of the United States, as was written in the Mueller report, the President of the United States ordered him to create a false record of the President's request to McGahn to fire Mueller, which, which McGahn properly refused. If McGahn can come forward and testify compellingly about this, that is, the President told me to lie and cover up and obstruct the Mueller in investigation, then that could be an article of impeachment for me. But you'd have to have the predicate of compelling testimony from McGahn. And we're ways away from that. So the, the initial court, just one second, Brian, the initial court ruled that McGahn has to testify. Um, and she wouldn't even stay her order demanding that he right. come forward. But it'll be appealed. It has been appealed. We'll see whether the Court of Appeals stays her order. Um, and then we'll see what sort of executive privilege claims are made in respect of his proposed testimony. So it, as it sits then, unless you would not support putting Mueller in, the, in uh, uh, as it if, sits right now. Correct. If we had a, if we had a say today, midnight is our deadline. Right. Then you would this not. This is all of the evidence that we have. I would say stick to Ukraine. And so uh, they are talking right now of preferring charges against the president. Uh, they will come forward, I would assume, sometime in the next week or so. Would that be? Well, I think there's um, hearings set again on Monday. Monday. And then the hope, I guess, is that the uh, testimonial phase of this before judiciary ends this week and that there's a vote in the committee as early as the following week. So that puts it around the 16th or so. And then they'd like to get it to the full House just before Christmas break. So if all plays out, and this is, uh, I'll, in this, we'll, we'll take a little break here after this, but 
so as it ends out, if you're if <laughs> if you're in the house, you're going to impeach him just prior to Christmas. They're going to re- they're going to go to Christmas break, and every member of the Senate in the House are going to have to hear from their uh, constituents over the Christmas break as to how to proceed. That, that's right. So if you look at the calendar, we're in the first week of December. The second week of December, starting the 9th of December, there's the last bit of um, witness testimony. They get to the end of that week, beginning of the week of the 16th, and they vote in committee. And then toward the end of that week, beginning perhaps um, no later than the, the 19th or 20th of the week, the very end of that week, um, they send it to the full house to vote. They go on on Christmas recess. They return sometime in January. And then the Senate sets the calendar for the prospect of a trial. So we could be January or February into a trial. Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the process and a couple of questions that have come up this week about the impeachment. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, and we're back. And uh, with us, uh, Michael, I, I really do appreciate you sitting down for this. I'm going to quiz you on a couple of things. Right. Um, first of all. I got my abacus. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've got my slide rule. Um, one of the things that I, uh, the pushback has been, there have been two consistent uh, uh, two consistent uh, speeches that the president has made. One is that, uh, Zelensky in uh, Ukraine has said, hey, no quid pro quo, so it doesn't matter. It was a perfect phone call. Does it matter for the purposes of impeachment what is said by the president of the Ukraine? Well, you have to understand that the president of the Ukraine's state of mind is relevant uh, to to this. Um, and if he felt that there wasn't a quid pro quo, I think that is evidence but I don't think it's dispositive of the case. If the president of the United States— I mean, they still want aid from us, right? So maybe what he's saying is so he can calm waters. Is that a consideration? Well, that's right. The two points I was going to make is one is if the president of the United States still makes the improper request that you must do this— That's Article 1 by you. And, and, and the Ukrainians felt like, well, this wasn't really— an order, um, but they were prepared to do it because we know that they had already contacted um, Fareed Zakaria for <laughs> CNN to do the interview that was asked in the favor. So, you know, whether they believed it to be a threat or an order, they understood at some point that this was still a requirement. And they made preparations for that. And you know, luckily for them, the, the the whistleblower came forward and the president became aware of it and Congress started raising eyebrows about it. And then on September 11th, they released the aid just a day or two before the scheduled appearance between uh, Zakaria and Zelensky. So it's relevant, but I don't think it's, you know, as I say, dispositive. It doesn't determine the outcome because as well as Does what I just said, case? well, as well as what I just said is what you just said, which is 
many people in that circumstance who need to have a continuing relationship with the United States aren't going to risk, you know, again, what Zelensky was most afraid of, being sucked into a partisan battle that would undermine the bipartisan, you know, goodwill that he's faced, you know, that, that Ukraine has um, been the beneficiary of beneficiary of all these years. So he might be saying it, as you say, to calm the waters and not upset everybody. I mean, he's everybody. still at war with Russia. He still needs our aid. <laughs> On a continuing basis. So that's why I think it it's probative, but it doesn't determine the outcome because there are so many factors that undermine the, 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 the truthfulness of that statement. The other thing that comes to mind is uh, Stephanie Grisham, and in case you all don't know who she is, she's the press secretary who for the last 156 days has never appeared before the press other than to be on a Fox News show and has conducted no uh, press briefing. Who would have thought we would miss Sean Spicer? (laughs) Or Sarah. (laughs) And Sarah Huckabee (laughs) Sanders. Uh, Uh, Those are the good old days. Well, you know, there is a point to be made that administrations learn from their uh, interaction with the press. And the fact that this president doesn't have press briefings just shows goes to show he doesn't learn much. Well, although you could say that, and, and it's true that there aren't formal press briefings in the press room, but how many presidents come out onto the South Lawn on a on on as regular basis as he does, and stand there for forty minutes as now um, you want to argue quality versus quantity. Well, no, no, I understand that, but <laughs> but he is out there talking oh, a lot. He's out, but you know, a dog barking chained to the yard doesn't inform you anything. It's just a dog barking. So I would, yeah, he does talk a lot, but does, he hasn't answered any of my questions. Even when he even when he points at me, I ask him a question, he acknowledges the questions, and then he says some words in answer to the question that I've asked. I don't. I maintain I've never gotten a real answer to a question. Plus, he can pretend like he didn't hear us because of the helicopter, and you can't follow up. So, yes, but to your point, indeed, he is his own press secretary. And those who say the president, you know, I agree with the president when he and and this may be a shock, but when he claims he's the most transparent president ever, I agree. <laughs> but what? We, we do get to see him a lot, <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know, in some sense, he's having virtual press conferences with his Twitter feed. Oh God! <laughs> right. So I mean, in some sense, we we are getting um, really sort of unfiltered his his state of mind. Yes, and I think that's what frightens most of his supporters. But that's that's a different. That's why they want the press briefings. Um, we don't get to talk about policy much, though. And that's so when Grisham, she said today she issued a statement saying that Nancy Pelosi's announcement that she's going to pursue impeachment, quote, moves this country toward the most partisan and illegitimate subversion of the Constitution in our history. Now, my question to you is not whether or not uh, Stephanie Grisham is a constitutional scholar, because I I checked (laughs) and she's not. But is there any portion of this statement that makes any sense? This is not a subversion of the Constitution. Isn't this a fulfillment of the Constitution? Yeah. Well, first of all, she's too young to remember the attacks that the Nixon um, people made during the impeachment process. And so... So she's quoting them. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it's... Impeachments are, 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 you know, pretty vicious 
uh, give yeah. and takes verbally. So, you know, Nixon called it a witch hunt and, and Clinton the same and now Trump the same. They're all following the same sort of uh, score. Yes, but we have sheet. not we have yet to hear that we're the nattering nabobs of negativism coming from this group. No, no, but but Spiro Agnew had a lot of things to say <laughs> yeah. about what you were um, as, Besides as, as well. Besides that, yeah. yeah. So, but 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 in fact, where she's most incorrect is that this is the process that the fa- framers of the Constitution set forth. That if they felt that the president of the United States engaged in conduct that equaled a high crime and misdemeanors then they shall, in their sole judgment, determine whether or not articles of impeachment are warranted. So they are fulfilling the obligations that the framers of the Constitution set forth. And to say that they're, they're acting in an unconstitutional way is, is mistaken. She could say, as many have said, that the evidence doesn't rise to the level of a high crimes and misdemeanor or doesn't rise to the level of a high crimes and misdemeanor yet as Turley said, because Turley said, remember yesterday, the Republican-selected um, constitutional scholar, Turley said, if the evidence presents itself that there was a quid pro quo, that's an impeachable offense. I mean, he, he acknowledges that. He just says that the evidence is not yet there. And that's why he wants us to continue gathering evidence uh, rather than proceed. When does he, that make sense? Well, it does, except for the timeline, because the and I would submit that it, I still can't get. How do you say it, you don't have enough evidence when his own transcript shows a clear "I want you to do me a favor" and even says so? How right. is well, there because, not enough evidence? Well, because I think that Turley and others um, are of the mind that in order for it to really be a high crimes and misdemeanors styled um, act, that you really need compelling evidence of the quid pro quo. That in their mind, the ask itself is is insufficient. They want to see um, the quid pro quo. That is... They saw the quid, they want to see the pro quo. Well, yeah, they want to see direct evidence almost out of the mouth of the president that he ordered military aid to be withheld and uh, the White House uh, meeting with him and Zelensky delayed until such time as either the investigation of the Bidens was completed or at least there was a public announcement of his intent to have that investigation. That's what these people are saying. If you have compelling evidence, the president said that, you go find me a transcript, a recording or a witness that said, the president told me, you go tell those guys, or you don't even have to tell those guys, I'm just going to hold up this aid because I've already asked them do this favor, and until they do that favor, they aren't going to see the aid. And we saw, remember, in the Office of Management and Budget, where the money was being held up, that every two to six days they were having to issue a new basis for holding it, and people were quitting at OMB because they thought that the hold was illegal. So there's a lot there that that speaks already to the quid pro quo, but some people just say, it's not enough. Is that just being blind to the obvious? Well, it's the you know it's the argument that without the gun, you can't tell that the decedent <laughs> was mur- you know mur- murdered. Um, 
You know, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence here <laughs> and a lot of reasonable inferences. We, we have the dead body. We have the bullet hole. We have the blood. Your hands have the You don't have the gun. You can't convict. Right. And so there are a lot of, you know, reasonable inferences, and there are a lot of circumstances that speak to the president compelling his men, the three amigos and um, Giuliani, to make sure that they I call them the three stooges, but okay, we'll go with three amigos. Well, let's go with what they called themselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I don't I'm not disparaging them. That's what they self they, that's how yeah. they refer to themselves. Well, that's kind of disparaging if you saw the movie The Three Amigos. <laughs> they they the, that's the three stooges, yeah, but okay. Yeah, 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 I get it. I get it. But, apparently they don't, but but nonetheless. Okay, so then the next question I have for you is uh, John Dean, remember John Dean from uh, the Nixon days, he said today that if it doesn't work, impeach him again. Do <laughs> you think that, Well, is that an option? Is that something that this nation could handle? I, I don't think that's the preferred process. I think the preferred, preferred process is one and done. But that said, if they go forward presently, with the evidence they have available to them, and they get to the Senate and they lose, that is, the, the, the Democrats lose and the president is acquitted, then, you know, and he's reelected, say. And then two years hence, when all of the court action comes to a conclusion and Mick Mulvaney and John Bolton and Kupperman and all the others that have been ordered not to testify are forced to testify. And they then provide this direct evidence of the quid pro quo. Then, sure, you can say we now have that which you demanded of us then. And maybe you're right. We should have waited, but we didn't. And we're going to now impeach again. They can do that. There's nothing that prohibits them from doing it. You know, the that'll tear this country apart. Yeah. Well, the country is pretty torn apart. That's uh, true. Already. Too. That's true. And so you cannot. You cannot get away from the fact that it is one of the most divisive times in our country's history. Yeah, there have been a lot of divisive times um, in our in our country's history, and we've overcome them. McCarthyism was one. The, hey, look at '68 versus 2019. Yeah, look at the 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 jailing of the um, Wobblies and other socialists in the World War Two World yeah. War One period. Look at the election of 1800 between Jefferson and Adams. I mean, there are lots of things that have been divisive and we've overcome them. I think they can be overcome. Do you think Again, this divisive time can be overcome? Well, I mean, I think there are certain things that need to, uh, that could be undertaken that would undermine the divisive practices continuing, which would be gerrymandering um, commissions so that states can't gerrymander districts um, away from purple to either red or blue, that they return to a 60-vote requirement in the House for compelling um, judges uh, for, for, nom- for what's the word? Um, about to edit this, but no, confirming. Right. There's the word, yeah, confirming. confirming. We confirming. don't have to edit that. I, I stumble on words all the time. Confirming <laughs> judges. I mean, yeah. I think that there are things that can be built into the system that would make the system work better, um, that would undermine the continued um, divisiveness of the country. But there has to be a political will to do that. Do you think that this time in our history is as—I had this asked to me the other day. 
you know, during 68, and let's see, we had Bobby Kennedy shot, Martha, Martin Luther King shot. There were the riots, uh, civil rights riots, riots, the uh, Democratic Convention, and the Tet Offensive. And during all that time, do you think this is as, as divisive as 68, less or more? So? Well, I think what's different between today and then well, the music was better, but that's a different issue. The music was better then, for sure. Um, was that there were more senators and Congress people who were purple? That is, that they were willing to be bipartisan. You know, remember in in the Nixon impeachment, you had people like the senator from Tennessee, Howard Baker, who, when right. the evidence became overwhelming, he said, you know what, enough's enough, and said, I don't support the president any longer. We don't see that as much these days because of the way the electoral process works, which is that it's either pretty much either red or blue with very few purple uh, people in the middle. And so uh, 68 was a pretty contentious time period, but at least you had the opportunity, I thought, for, for there to be people who would reach across that divide to when when the evidence demanded it. Here, I, I just don't see it. I don't see, see it. it. I agree. So that before we go to the, our, our, our last break here, um, that's the question, I guess, that that is overriding with me. And I keep looking down the road, and it seems like, and I've said it time and again, that you know the future of the republic rests firmly on the round shoulders of Mitch McConnell. He's going to have to have a meeting with the president after Christmas and prior to the Senate trial, where he's going, where if the needle has moved and there are more than 60 percent of the people in the country, they say, supporting uh, his impeachment, he's going to have to walk in and tell the president either A, don't sweat it, you got the votes, or B, sweat it, you don't have the votes. And I don't see at this point, I have not seen and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see the Senate convicting the president unless no. there was a secret ballot. <laughs> right. I don't know if that's permissible. I mean, yeah. the, the, I mean, today, from the Democrats' perspective, was not a great day in that one of the Democrats, who I think is on House Judiciary, bolted, announced that on the evidence that he has heard, he would not support articles of impeachment. And so... But he's also one of the ones who didn't vote for this procedure as well. I understand. Yeah. I understand. So there are two that they, the Democrats thought would not vote f- with them anyway. That's right. I, un- I understand that. And, and um, the likelihood that you're going to get 67 U.S. senators voting to convict and remove it on the evidence present is, is fanciful. Yeah, you'd have to have 20 Republicans. Essentially. Yeah. And, um the 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 obligation on Mitch McConnell's round shoulders, as you call them, is <laughs> is to make sure that the Senate trial is a real trial and that it's not some show where they try to bring in Hunter Biden and Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton's email servers and you know that they have to really make it a trial so that people are convinced that this was a real airing of the merits of the claim that the House has made and a, a, tr- a true resolution of that on the facts and not some sideshow side circus. And at that point in time, 
I think historically, you know, Donald Trump has always said he wanted to make history, <laughs> and uh, he may well do it. He may be the first impeached president to run for re-election. Yeah, yeah, he may be. And that's, that's his privilege. If he's not if he's not convicted and removed, he is still eligible to run for re-election and be re-elected. And then he's still eligible, as John Dean said, to, to be, be impeached, impeached again, again if there were evidence of additional crimes. Next year is going to be very interesting. <laughs> well, call me. I'll be in Costa Rica. <laughs> New Zealand looks yeah. good. Yeah. I like the warmer climates myself. <laughs> we'll start a new Al- Algonquin roundtable <laughs> of writers and politicians. <laughs> Anyway, so we'll take a short break. We'll be right back, and we'll think about Costa Rica. So, Mr. Zeldin, we have done these things. This is about the third or fourth time. Last time, you got, we're going to close with one of my favorite things, music. Okay. <laughs> the last time we were here, you asked me a couple of questions. i got a couple for you. Okay. So, uh, I guess the first one would be Axis Bold, of Lo- Bold is Love or Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. Which one? Oh, I think I like the first album best, uh, the Are You, Are you Experienced, experienced album. Because yeah. I, I saw him, I saw him uh, essentially play that album really um, live. Yeah, and um, it was you know I never had heard of him. I didn't go to see him. He was brought in because there was a illness. I think it was the Young Rascals who I went to see. I can tell you the difference. And then wow. And then uh, uh, Hendrix played, and he played "Are You Experienced?" And remember that was the time when he was like burning his guitar. And yeah, yeah. So that has been you watched him burn his guitar seared in my memory. Yes, and so, <laughs> seared in your memory. No pun intended. Right, right. So <laughs> I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with with that one. Led Zeppelin or the Who? Oh, I never liked the Who. So really. Um, um, yeah, I, I like the song "Happy Jack," and I liked the song um, uh, one of the two one or two songs on the the, the uh, Pinball Wizard, right? Uh, whatever that album was called. Yeah, but beyond Pinball that, Wizard. I was never never a, a Who fan. Never a, never a Who fan. No. But you liked Led Zeppelin. But I liked Led Zeppelin first two albums, especially. Yeah, yeah, the first two. Yeah, well, they're all up until about well, I liked most of them until they seventy eight when Bonzo Bonham, you know, died after that came out then i didn't i haven't really liked them too much but we talked about this before that's one of the bands that i never got to see yeah and would have liked to have seen i saw live yeah i like to have seen live yeah so and then my third one for you is and but i can't really ask you this because you went to woodstock but i was going to say monterey pop festival or, or woodstock but you were at woodstock yeah so you know that that's uh, a, a memory that that you know many things there will remain you know <laughs> in the same server as the as the uh, as the Trump uh, uh, oh do conversation. Tell. just between me and you and everybody who listens here well no I, I, I mean I saw I saw you know the two other festivals beside Woodstock were Monterey Pop which were you know which was a success and then 
the um, Altamount Speedway. You were at Altamount too? No, 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 no. Oh, no, you didn't. So I'm it. saying those are the, those were the big three, and I think yeah. that among them, well, Altamont was a failure because of the murder of uh, right and the Hell's Angels. Well, and that's all what that happens sort of when stuff. you hire the Hell's Angels to be your security. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, in retrospect, I think Mick Jagger said that was a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I just think that um, Woodstock was, you know, sort of it among those big concerts, and from well, and and there, and because I was there. You know, yeah, it becomes much more special. Yeah, <laughs> even if you can't mention everything that you saw there, even if I, even if I can't remember yeah. <laughs> what I saw there. there. There's that old joke. How do you know if uh, you know? Uh, how do you tell someone who's pretending they uh, lived through the '60s and those who actually did? Those who actually did don't remember much. Right, of it. right, exactly, exactly. So, but but Woodstock was something. I I was one of the millions of people who could have gone to Woodstock. So you know, I saw something de- very depressing the other day on CNN. They had a uh, Woodstock fifty years later. Yeah, um, uh, Weir. I think the, the reporter's yeah. name Bob Weir is it? Yeah, um, from the Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> Weir is his last name. Fanny his first name. And he did a, a wonderful show. It was a very uh, good show. But Crosby, Stills, and Nash do not speak to each other. Yes. And uh, uh, Graham Nash, when asked, would you guys ever have a reunion again, said, I don't want David Crosby in my life at all. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, that's a terrible end to Woodstock because that was their second performance. Yes. It was the very second performance they did. I think the last performance they did was 2015 uh, at the lighting of the Christmas tree on the, the mall with the Obamas. They sang uh, some Christmas carol, and now they don't speak at all. There was a, uh, I saw a, um, a documentary about the, the uh, L.A. sound, and David Crosby was interviewed for that, and he said, well, the reason why some people don't talk to him anymore is because I used to be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, he well, he used it. to be a drug-addicted. Asshole, yeah. In fact, he was, he was pulled over right after John Lennon, was shot and killed and had a gun on him, and the cops asked him why were you carrying a gun. He said John Lennon. Right, and uh, the mugshot of him is a yes. famous mugshot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very well infamous, but <laughs> either or, <laughs> as you wish. Yeah, but, but it, you know, it was it was a great concert. I mean, and there are a lot of wonderful stories about it. You know, the the Crosby, Stills and Nash doing their second performance and. Santana being brought well, on. Tell um, me one story that you remember that's a good anecdote that you feel comfortable sharing. Well, no, the thing that I think I remember best is as I was getting, I was a camp counselor. I was off for the weekend. Uh, I arranged my whole summer um, at this YMCA camp where I was uh, a camp counselor so I could go to Woodstock, which I did. And uh, But I had to get back in order to be with my bunk when my Christmas, when my uh, vacation was over, and I was walking out, and it was so muddy, and we were just so disgustingly dirty from the mud and lack of showers and and other stuff. But there I am walking out of it while Jimi Hendrix is playing the Star Spangled Banner, and oh. I thought, well, that is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> that would be cool. And then I hitchhiked <laughs> my way back to the camp and took a shower and went on with my. Were you eighteen? Uh, six, yeah. 
17 or 18, something in that way. Great way to be, be a great time to be a teenager. Yeah, it was a great day. <laughs> All right, your turn. No, I, you know, I think, I think we're going to leave it on this happy, okay. happy <laughs> note. With me. I, w- I will, uh, you know, I, I'd asked you, I think, off, offline um, once what concert um, you wished you could have seen. And I think we each came to agree that it would have been wonderful to see James Brown at the Apollo Theater. Absolutely. That, that's that one thing. That is the one thing I would, oh, are you right. kidding? Yeah. That would be, you know, because my band sings I Feel Good. And I just to see James Brown do that song live, oh, that would have been everything. At the Apollo. At it the has Apollo. to be at the Apollo. It has Apollo. to be at the Apollo. Absolutely. All right. Well, Michael, thanks for joining us again. We'll do this again as we go down. Stay tuned because we still have a lot to do when it comes to impeachment. Yeah, and two I weeks hence. Being here. Two weeks hence, I think we'll be talking about the articles of impeachment that have yeah. been returned. Yeah. yeah, I want to. We should visit this at least one more time before the end of the year because uh, I think they're going to adjourn over the Christmas break, and it will be a lot for everyone to digest over Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas, everybody. That that war on Christmas was not successful. Right. Neither was the war on Thanksgiving. Right. <laughs> We're all still here. <laughs> thanks for joining us once again. The name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next time.